Well, good morning. My name is Mike, and I clearly didn't get the memo on what we're wearing today. Uh, no, that's not true. Tim and Chris and I rochambeaued, and Chris lost. He got to do the dance. I got to wear the suit. Tim got to do announcements. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of John. We're getting close to the end here. John is, it's, it's a weird literary genre, if you will. It's called a gospel. Well, I thought the gospel was good news. Yeah, it's, it's like that. It's, it's about good news. It's about the person who brought good news. It's not quite a history because it's not absorbed with a people or a place primarily. It's not really a biography because, I don't know about you, the idea of a biography of God seems a little staggering. It's not quite that. It's about getting at the truth of who Jesus is. And we've got four Gospels in, in our New Testament, and this one has been a really interesting ride for the last 17 years or however long it's been that we've been doing it. Uh, we live in an era where this idea of the truth about something is a little hard to locate and identify. Um, when I tried this suit on after Don Vitarelli tailored it for me, um, I, I looked in the mirror and I said, that looks pretty good. And he said, well, I tapered it for you, but I left the fabric in. And I started laughing. I'm like, so that it can expand with me? And uh, he's completely straight face. He says, well, over the years, the material may shrink. <laughs> he's a lovely man and uh, he's a good tailor and he might not have been telling me the whole truth. You think? We're exposed to maybe more dangerous untruths than that one. Not just online news sources, but every source of news appears to report without checking anything these days. And uh, I, I was grieved to hear that uh, a, a graduate of Butte College, I don't know if he's a graduate actually, an alum of Butte College, feels that he's a victim for his beliefs. That's Aaron Rodgers. And I'm working really hard not to talk about Aaron Rodgers. So let me just say, there are a lot of people today taking their frustrations out on each other and each claiming a ground of truth, and they can't all be right. And that's honestly been true in this country since its beginning. If you read the things the Founding Fathers said about each other, had handbills printed up about each other, Ugly stuff. You look at newspapers for 50, 50, 10 years, say, before the Civil War, um, every newspaper had a take. It was either owned by a political party or it had a sectarian view of some kind and pumped it. Truth was inconsequential. And it's not just the United States. If you go back, early Christians suffered from this misconception from the Roman culture around them that they ate babies. Why would they think that? Well, first of all, the Romans exposed weak infants to let them die, sort of a, a proto-eugenics plan, and the Christians would take in the babies and raise them because they thought all life was valuable. But they also had meetings where everyone was welcome, but then they sent everybody who wasn't a Christian away for the feast, at which they did these sketchy things like eat the body and drank the blood. And if you're a Roman and you put those things together, suddenly your hype machine makes these people out into monsters. But it's not just the Christian era. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, 
you will see Adam and Eve hiding from the truth with the serpent, hiding from the truth with each other, hiding from the truth with God. Today's passage, we've got Peter, we've got the religious leaders, and we've got Pilate. They're all hiding from the truth in different ways. And we're going to look at that, and then we're going to take a look at ourselves. Dun, dun, dun. So let's look at Peter first. I love last week's sermon. I hope you got to hear it. In Pastor Tim's passage last week, John describes Peter and another disciple, wink, wink, follow Jesus. The other disciple is somehow known to the high priest, and so he basically gets past the bouncer. Uh, and he's able to say a word to the, you know, coat check girl, I guess, uh, to get Peter in as well. But when he does so, she notices Peter, and she goes, you're one of this man's disciples too, aren't you? In verse uh, 17 of chapter 18, and he replies, I am not. Verse 18 continues, it was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Oh, teehee, just a little lie, just, just a, okay. Now, in Tim's passage, we see this glimpse of Peter, and then John changes scenes. It's like a film or something. He's, he's now back with Jesus, and okay, in our passage, we start as John moves back to see what's going on with Peter. It hasn't gotten any better. Verse 25, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of, your, of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not, in no doubt his Galilean accent. Uh, yeah, oops, I did it again. I denied my Lord. I'm not that faithful. Uh, John 18, 26 and 27, one more time. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. I wonder if this man would remember who cut his relative's ear off. Does this denial see... Sorry. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And I've got to think that in Peter's mind, it wasn't cock-a-doodle-doo. It was womp-womp. Sad trombone for Peter because three denials of the truth, three denials of Jesus, three times failing in his vow to lay down his life for Jesus. Verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, oh, I'm sorry, let me give you context. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm now going back to where Jesus called some shots. Three times failing to his vow to lay down his life. Here's how that happened in John 13, verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, what, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus told the truth about Peter, but it was a difficult truth, one Peter didn't want to hear and maybe succeeded in not really hearing. The truth was that Peter wasn't going to be the hero that he thought he would be laying down his life for Jesus. When a bunch of officials and soldiers come to get Jesus from the garden, all he'd managed to do was take a sword and whack an ear off a mere servant. And then Jesus, not even needing a cure light wounds, fixes it immediately. I mean, 
nothing to show for that incident. And now here they are in this situation, in the courtyard, and he can't even say, yes, I was with him. Look, real friends support each other in all circumstances, but without telling each other just what they want to hear, real friends tell the truth they need to hear. And the truth is that Peter was not that kind of hero. But don't miss this. The original readers of John's gospel know something about this man. John's gospel is written at least a decade after the the death of Peter. After Peter, standing up for Jesus, is killed by the Romans. He would have been kind of a big deal even if he wasn't Pope. He would have been kind of a big deal because he was with Jesus. He was a church leader. He was a Jewish church leader and a Gentile church leader, and he was at a large church in Rome. He was significant and visible. But I'm going to argue that one of the reasons that Peter was a great church leader is because of what happened here. Because he thought he was going to be the one who was true to Jesus. He was going to hit the beach hard and didn't. He was, I'll say anything for you, Lord. I don't care who I have to say it to. I'll use whatever actions are required, Lord. I'll back you up. And yet his violence accomplished nothing. And whatever he intended to say to the enemies just didn't come out of his mouth. No, no, I don't know him. But Peter didn't stay that way. Jesus told him the truth about that as well. Another month, Pastor Tim's going to cover this passage more fully, but here's a glimpse ahead into John 21, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, apparently can't see well, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And Peter did. Jesus didn't grade Peter on his best effort. Jesus didn't grade Peter on his least faithful moment. What was his call? Follow me. No condemnation, just a call forward. Not under his own power, but following his risen king. Jesus is our leader. We are to be followers of him and servants to one another. But not everybody is on that trajectory. And there are other ways of hiding from the truth, as we'll see by looking at the religious leaders. They've got a whole different agenda. And their story begins earlier in this chapter when Jesus was arrested. So back to John 18, starting in verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. This reminds me of the Godfather. Have you seen the Godfather? Vito Corleone. Yeah, he's, he's the Godfather. But at some point, he steps down. He goes into semi-retirement. His son takes over as the Godfather, but Vito stays on as a consigliere. He's an advisor. Vito serves that son as an advisor. Never go against the family, right? 
they keep the flavor of the family and <laughs> be careful going against Annas's family too. Annas had been high priest, John says. He's Caiaphas's father-in-law, John says. What he doesn't say is that history shows us that seven people in addition to Annas from Annas's family held the high priesthood and that they held it for 40 years, not contiguously, but off and on during most of Jesus's life. So Annas, all five of his sons, Joseph Caiaphas, this man, his son-in-law, and a grandson. So you're talking about a family that's got some juice to stay alive in this time when Roman governors appoint things, and Caiaphas himself lasted 18 years in this job, which is crazy, especially because he makes a transition from one governor to another. Normally, the new guy comes in, gets a new high priest in, let's start fresh. That didn't happen with Pilate. Behind the scenes are Annas. He's got this influence going on. And what happens in the verse before our passage? Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So they arrest Jesus at the garden. They bring him to the not anymore the high priest for an interrogation. And then they take him to the real high priest. And what's interesting is that John doesn't spend any time showing us what happens with Caiaphas in this interview. John's not interested in that for whatever reason. He cuts away at this point and starts our passage showing Peter denying Jesus. And now he cuts it back without telling us what happened. Why not? We'll ask John when you see him. But in my opinion, it's because these guys are all part of a crew and you know how they're going to roll. Whatever Annas said is how it's going to go. If Caiaphas says it, Annas is going to back him up because that's how they've survived being powerful people in this situation. It's like a religious politburo if you're old enough to remember the Soviet Union. So back to John 18, 28 to 30, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. What charges are you bringing? Trust us, he's a criminal. I mean, it's starting to sound like the Godfather. They've become a lynch mob, effectively, but they have limited time. The clock is elapsing before the Sabbath arrives, and they need to get this innocent man executed so they can go do religious stuff. Ruth reminded us a couple weeks ago what Micah the prophet said God requires. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Oh, they're ringing all those bells, right? They nailed it. Nah, huge injustice going on here, but that's the world they live in. John 18, 31 and 32. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. These guys feel like they're running the show, and the reality is that God is maneuvering them into fulfilling his plan, and they don't get it at all, certainly not at this time. And the reality is, yeah, they didn't have the legal authority to execute people, but as we study Acts next year, we're going to find that things happen. 
Stephen gets stoned to death, and some of these people are in the crowd. But that was mob action. It was in the moment. It wasn't following interview by the high priest and the formerly high priest and the whole nine yards. That's going to look bad. It's going to make the governor look bad. And that's not how, if you're one of these priestly people, you stay in power. You've got to make things smooth for your governor if you can. The more important thing is this moving along by circumstances where they're doing the will of God despite their intention to do something else. They're seizing the opportunity to have this unclean Roman in whose palace they can't even be so that they'll be pure, just as Jesus had intended and communicated to fulfill what Jesus said about the kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death was that? Well, let's go to the replay booth to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Pastor Tim always calls this Nick at night. John 3, verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is such a weird reference to such a weird story in the book of Numbers. Uh, The people of Israel, guess what? They're rebelling and bellyaching. And... God sends poisonous snakes, and enough people get bitten and are sick and are dying that they say, hey, Moses, cry out to God for us. And he does, and God says, make a serpent and put it on a stick. Anybody who looks at it will be fine. And you read that story in the book of Numbers, and you go, why is this here? I will tell you why it's here, so that Jesus could fulfill it in a way beyond what anybody had any idea was going to happen. The fabric of Scripture is woven together in ways that are crazy. Talk about a called shot. Who's going to be lifted up to cure the people? It's going to be Jesus. Yes, that serpent cured some people, but guess what? Their rebellion continued. Their sin continued. How will it ever end? How it will end is with the intervention of God himself. Jesus identifies himself with that snake. His whole reason for coming to live among us instead of remaining in heavenly splendor was because every single one of us in this room and outside it is damned to die. Snake bit by our own sin. He has to be lifted up to save me and you. And that message isn't just in this one conversation with Nicodemus. John 8, starting with verse 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Jesus calls his shot again. He and the Father are on the same page implementing their plan. John 12, 32 and 33, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth on a cross, he's going to draw all people to himself. Not just Jews, not just Jews and Samaritans, but Gentiles too. It's crazy. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. There is no other way to God. There is no other way out of the sin cycle, out of the sin spiral that leads to death and separation from God. No matter how good we act like we are, no matter how good we pass ourselves off to other people, 
There's no solution within my power or within your power to solve this. And Jesus, the perfect one, the sinless one, the good one, the righteous one, the kind one, the powerful one, is giving up his life in this passage for me and for you if we'll follow him. Same call as he gave Peter. That's who Jesus is. But the religious leaders don't know him that way because they are angry and they are afraid. They're angry that he's popular. They're angry that he's powerful. They're angry that they can't corner him. Angry that they can't kill him. Angry that they can't shut him down. And they're afraid that he'll mess everything up. They're afraid for the nation, but they're also afraid for themselves. They've got a good grift going on. They're as set as they're going to set. They've got this, this tension. The people like them okay. They're navigating the Romans okay. Everything is as good as it's going to get. And this guy is a critic. And he's so godly. And he's so uncontrollable. Every time we've tried to interfere with him, he wins. Ha! <sighs> and guess what? Fear and anger, they distract us too from who Jesus is and what Jesus does. But they've got him now. And all they have to do is, is coax Pilate into seeing things their way. But Pilate resisted and wanted them to do their religious stuff without bothering him. But they're about to handle that. So let's look at Pilate's relationship to the truth. This governor, this Gentile, this Roman, he's, he's a practical man. The Romans are not theoreticians. They're engineers. They understand less ideas and more power. John 18, to 35, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And look, there are a couple of answers that Jesus could give depending on how Pilate answers this question. So, if Pilate is asking this question on his own, it's because he's thinking as a Roman would think, are you a person with a tangible threat to Caesar? Are you a king of a people or a place? Is that your claim? Because if you are, I've got to deal with that and I know how. But that's not who Jesus is, at least not in this coming. Now, on the other hand, if the religious leaders have planted this idea in Pilate's head, the question is whether he is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel. And yes, as a matter of fact, he's that. But Jesus isn't just clarifying the question. He's redirecting Pilate's focus from a title to Jesus himself. He's giving Pilate an opportunity to engage on his own. He asks who do you say I am? Jesus always asks us good questions about ourselves, and this is a question we all are going to have to answer. Hopefully now, but for sure later. Pilate neatly sidesteps that, though. He's not buying any of it. He matrixes around the, the, the bullet. They brought you to me as a criminal. What did you do? That's where he goes. He's not looking at Jesus. He's got a form to fill out. He's got reports to file. He needs to get the information down so that we can get this bureaucratic nightmare over with. And the religious leaders pursuing truth and justice, no doubt, declined to tell Pilate what the charge was. 
This whole thing's a sham trial, and nobody has a charge against him so far. Kafka would be proud. Look that up. Uh, John 18, 36 and 37, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Jesus gets right to the point. But it's not what he's done, what he's accomplished. It's who he is. Who he is is a kingdom, a, a king of a kingdom that's not of this world. What? Like, okay, it's true that most of his servants didn't attempt violence to prevent their master be, from being taken. But if he's not a king of a kingdom of the world, what does that leave? I'm a king in my own mind. What, what does Pilate have to grasp on here? Jesus is a king in a different sense. He doesn't have a military, at least not one that he can explain to Pilate, and, <laughs> and not one he's going to use. Pilate doesn't take the bait, though. He doesn't want to engage on this intriguing response. He latches onto the king part. You are a king. Aha! And Jesus responds much as he did in his conversation to Nicodemus. If we look back to that in John 3, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus tells Pilate, I'm not from around here, but I came here as a witness to the truth. I'm going to testify. If you're on the side of the truth, you will listen because everyone, everyone, that means everyone on the side of truth listens, but Pilate shows on this day at least he's not on the side of truth. Verse 38, what is truth? He retorts that. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. And look, many people respond to Jesus by deflecting, changing the subject, maybe even attempting escape. Pilate is confronted with the opportunity to find out who Jesus is, what he's about, what he knows. But he just says, what is truth? He literally leaves the interview to talk to the religious leaders because he's not interested in the truth. And it doesn't matter, in your head you can stage this play and you can deliver Pilate's line however you want. Snotty, frustrated, angry, confused, indifferent. Whatever it is, he's not interested in Jesus. And at the same time, he can't deny that there's no legitimate charge against Jesus. He reports that back to the religious leaders, but in his very next sentence, he leaves them a play. John 18, 39 and 40. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Barabbas is apparently a zealot, seeking to overthrow the occupying government, committing crimes in that cause. He seems like a bad guy, but we've already seen that in their anger and jealousy, these religious leaders aren't seeing straight. But Pilate reminds them of a practice that they had together of releasing a prisoner at Passover time. We don't have any information about this outside Scripture. 
And so some people doubt that it existed. I think it's much more likely that this is a deal that Pilate's got and Annas's family has got, and they've developed it over time, and it's working. The, the, the guy who's representing Caesar wants to keep his job and wants to keep the peace. He's not having a great time in this gig, I promise you. And maybe by throwing them the bone of one prisoner at Passover time, he'll make some people happy. And the high priests, oh, they look like they're effective managers. Look at how we're, we, we got our people released. So they've got this kind of weird thing going on. Pilate calls Jesus the king of the Jews, but it's not out of respect. It's not out of belief. It's ironically out of a contempt for these people who have to be managed like that, with whom he has an uneasy understanding at best. And then you got Barabbas, whose name in Aramaic means son of the father. He's claimed for release in the place of Jesus. So the criminal son of the father is set free, and the sinless son of the father is exchanged for him. Right here is enacted the kind of transaction that Jesus came to make. That Jesus is the son of the father who matters. The father who knew you and I would be like Peter and like the religious leaders and like Pilate. The father who nonetheless, beyond all of our hopes and dreams, extends to you and me the way out of our foolishness and selfishness. John 3, 17 through 19. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Pilate and the religious leaders, they denied that. They didn't want to be identified with the light. <laughs> Peter, for the moment, did as well. But what about us? We could sit here and look down at all three of these, these people. We could hear how they hide, and we could apply it to someone in our time period who's not us. So I can, I can think of an application for you. But instead of doing that, let's think about ourselves. How do we do these things? Well, we can fear like Peter. And it's easy to see him, you know, trying to stay warm by the fire and avoiding eye contact, not wanting the truth to come out, right? It's not that he wasn't a Jesus guy. It's just he couldn't bear to admit it in that crowd. We talked about this in, in our community group last week, that there are places that we can sort of hide in plain sight where fear keeps us from engaging. We're still there, but we're not engaged to a level that maybe we even feel tugs to pursue. And look, treasure your connections with people who believe. Invite someone here to go to lunch to increase your connectedness with Jesus' people. It's great when we can put on a lunch, but you can make your own and meet somebody over a meal. And if I may say so, next week I hear that they're providing food and maybe Chris will dance again if you come in. I think we also ought to celebrate not being hidden away with each other. We ought to be glad that we can have family 
or neighbors or coworkers or housemates or friends who can come to know a little bit about who Jesus is as we ourselves live life a little bit more like he would. But we're only going to do them any good if we're not in a religious ghillie suit where we are hiding who we are on the inside and we're fitting in. And I don't mean clothes because obviously I'm already not fitting in in that sense. I mean, am I sharing the values of the groups that I'm in when they don't share values with Christ so that I can get along? That's, that's the kind of camouflage that I'm talking about. Around here, I'm talking about being motivated by power or money or security or revenge or all kinds of other things that are expressly not what Jesus is about. And I could ask you, where are you hiding your relationship with Jesus? But let's try to be a little more constructive than that. Where has God proactively placed you as his representative to testify to the truth of who Jesus is? Not more than you know, just what you know. And who or what do you fear in the place God has placed you? All right, let's keep rolling. Already decided like the religious leaders. So we could fear like Peter. We can already have made the call. They were motivated by fear, but their actions took a more aggressive shape than Peter's did. John makes clear that from early in his ministry, this group of people were set on trying to kill him trying to kill Jesus. They refused to believe what was true of Jesus. Jesus was going to prove them wrong about him. He's in the middle of doing that in our passage today. They misunderstood who Messiah was, but they didn't see it now, and there's no evidence that they saw it later. But do you know what the facts were? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Their truth was that that made him a blasphemer because he was claiming to be God. The reality is something different. John 10, 36, starting about halfway in. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of the Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. He gave them everything they needed to know and they didn't believe. And maybe you're here and you've been hearing about Jesus for a long time, but you don't know him and you haven't wanted to know him. Not really. And the problem that you have is that he's true. Everything about him that John is writing is completely true. Later, John's going to write a letter. He's going to remind his readers, Jesus appeared to take away our sins. In him is no sin. This isn't a regular man. But maybe you're here and you've heard about Jesus, and you know plenty. You've known him for a long time. You've served inside and outside churches, and you're set. But there's something going on in your world that you don't like. A tough time, a friend who has abandoned you, friction in a relationship that you can't seem to resolve or overcome. Maybe you love a person who isn't following Jesus or is actively rebelling against God, and you're sad and you're scared about that got a couple of questions. In what situation are you too afraid or angry to trust God? Second, what do you need so you can give up your own way in that situation, your own solution, your own desired outcome, knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Ignoring like Pilate, silly Gentiles, the Messiah is for Israel. Well, no. 
not exclusively. Good thing for most of us, right? But Pilate didn't know that. Pilate literally had his maker before him. He had the God-man standing there before him, for there is only one God, though we know him and understand him as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And perhaps there was too much for Pilate to unlearn. And even if he'd been as curious and open to what Jesus was going to say as Nicodemus had been, he couldn't have understood who Jesus was in the way that the Samaritan woman did in John 4. But we don't know, because Pilate wasn't interested in what's true. He wasn't sure he believed in truth even. He would have fit right in today. I know a lot more about Jesus. Well, let's look back. I knew a lot more about who Jesus was when I was a young man than I did anything with. For a time, I, I didn't have a relationship with Jesus that sustained me in confusion or difficulty or challenge. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, what you're claiming about Jesus, that he's true, doesn't even make sense to me. What does it mean for a person to be true? It means this, the God of the universe, the perfectly holy and righteous and unapproachable God who sees every single time I call a fellow driver on the road a moron under my breath or over my breath, that God so cares for me that all I've done to distance myself from him and my thoughts and my actions They couldn't stand in his way. He overcame them. And he barged into history, bearing the indignity of being physically born to one of his creations and living in squalor in his creation, to be poor and homeless and misunderstood, mistreated, even oftentimes by his closest friends. He lived and he taught in a way that nobody had heard before. And as we'll read in the next few weeks, he allowed himself to be unjustly tortured accused, mocked, buried, because only he could give up his life to bear my sin. There was no other way to do it. To do what? To unify these two truths. The truth that God's perfection and his separation from everything that falls short of his absolute perfection, able to meet the truth of my imperfection, my sin disease, my death sentence, my deserved eternal separation from God, who is the source of every good. Those two things are true. Now what do we do? Now we look to Jesus. But that's the truth that Pilate opted out of. So are you here today in this room or online and you haven't realized that? or even you've consciously opted out of that? Every life in this room, no matter how fond of you that I am, falls short of God's glory. And I can't tell you how amazing it is to live in God's presence with access to God's love and care and attention. So I've got two more questions. What's your response to the truth of the good news of Jesus Messiah? And if you've received that good news, what will you do with it now? I'm going to pray in a moment. After I do that, we're going to take a few minutes to interact with each other. And Tim's going to come up and lead that in a moment. We're going to put a few questions on the screen. You'll have the chance to answer them together. 
But let's pray. God, the hardest truth that I've ever had to confront is that I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And without rescue, even you can't like me. But what you did, God, was you showed that, yes, even when I was a sinner far from you, even when I didn't want you, you had a plan and you'd implemented it, and Jesus had done work that I could never do. Jesus had lived a perfect life to your standards, and then he put himself in my place. And I thank you so much for that exchange. And as we contemplate your goodness in allowing that to happen, would you allow our fear and our anger and our indifference to begin to melt away? Would you allow us to think seriously about who you are and who Jesus said he was in a way that will help us, but that will also help those around us? I ask these things by, by the power of the authority of Jesus. Amen.